Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper, welcoming to the podcast Mr. Mike Hanzal, a long, long term, I'm sure, fan of the podcast and, uh, you know, all of our collected works generally. but who, who, Mike's a director, if I'm not mistaken, at the Roosevelt Institute. Is that correct? That's correct. And um, longtime writer uh, and analyst of financial markets, economics, uh, and so on and so forth. And most recently, author of the book, Freedom from the Market, which has just come out, America's Fight to Liberate Itself from the Grip of the Invisible Hand. Um we're going to get into it, but I've, I've just uh, posted a review, um, on my own, you know, the week, you know, I figure we're going to have you on the, the pod. I might as well double dip and get, uh, get a column out of it too. Absolutely, um, man. But just to give you a preview, I think it's a, it's a great book. Nice, quick read, you know, uh, it's, it's compact, but it's not, uh, rushed, I would say, you know, you get your points out and you don't, uh, waste anybody's time. I like that. You know, I like when, uh, I like when books, you know, they, they earn their length, but I don't like it when they sort of overstay their welcome, I suppose. And yeah, it's uh, this seems, for- it's perfect. Yeah. Like, like loosening a belt. I felt like if I had like put one more notch on the book and then belt in this, like it would have been like 500 pages. So I felt like I had to kind of keep it on a diet, uh, on each chapter to chapter. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to, to give us a little, you know, a kind of backgrounding in, you know, what, why, why you chose this title and the, and the topic freedom from the market. And it's like, what what is the the picture of freedom that you're sort of contesting and what's the sort of like you know napkin sketch of the con- concept that you're elaborating and you know why is that important yeah absolutely so thanks for having me on long time listener first time caller and guest uh, <laughs> and it's really cool to be on and um yeah so like the the origin of the book has kind of two two strands one was um these public policy fights from particularly about a decade ago, where um, I think people started to think through what a more robust public program, um, what a more robust set of public institutions and interventions in the market might look like, and fights over it from what was often called left neoliberalism in this in the space. And I'm thinking like old log fights. I know Ryan's been involved with a lot of these. <laughs> um, and, and the idea was like, we needed arguments for why we needed more robust public programs and a more robust intervention in the economy outside of like these traditional stories about market failure, which while widespread and pernicious, like just wasn't really getting to where um, I, I felt like the temperature and the anger really in the country was. And so, um, you know, obviously a lot of people had spent the last decade, in, including me and, and you guys, like making the case for why these programs are better. But I wanted to draw something a little bit different, like a history, something to ground it in something that showed that these fights were more widespread um, and bigger and longer term than I think we had appreciated. Um, I had written a little bit about this at time to time. And then obviously going to like the six, 2016 uh, primary election became much bigger of a topic and, you know, the politics around to change dramatically, but it was always in my head about how do you make these arguments better and stronger with part of the argument being that neoliberalism and this like era of the last 40 or 50 years had kind of like stripped our imagination 
uh, and had really like erased the history from our minds to the point where we could really only think in terms of markets and like how do we make a better market and how do we get you know better market institutions and whatnot. Um, you know, that was one. And then the second was arguments uh, I first encountered through Corey Robin uh, in 2011, I think, when I first met him, actually, as a paper he wrote for The Nation, arguing that the left had to reclaim the politics of freedom, that the right had essentially bulldozed over any meaning of freedom, and um, particularly a, a notion of freedom as markets, both that freedom is being able to be in markets and markets are a type of freedom. So like a kind of a straitjacket on both ends. And that got me reading more uh, arguments by people like Eric Foner and elsewhere that saying like, you know, like politics has always been bound up with how we argue about freedom. And I thought that that was ripe territory for taking from this because the idea of freedom only being in markets and markets, which are fundamentally unequal and fundamentally about winners and losers and not about any kind of egalitarianism, um, you know, like we needed to overturn that somehow. And so that, that was the other half of it. Yeah. I really did appreciate that in the book, um, the way that you weave together the history, which is, which is done uh, sometimes, and then the, the, the theoretical and conceptual debates, which is done sometimes. But you show that those sites of struggle historically went together, right? Like the actual practice and struggle politically for freedom uh, was at the same time and concomitantly being fought uh, for over the definition of what freedom really meant. And, and I think that's important for people that, that kind of dismiss definitions or fights over terms, whether it's fascism or neoliberalism or freedom, you know, who cares what, the, what we call it, right? Just give me the policy. Uh, but I think you, your, your book does a really great job of showing how important that is for the very reason that, that theory and praxis really do go together. They really have gone together and we really do need to do the conceptual work in order to do the political emancipatory work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the action makes the theory and the theory in turn informs the action. So it's like this wonderful dialectical structure. And, you know, I didn't even, it was kind of shocking how well it worked because like the more you look, the more people have always just framed the fights, whether it's an eight hour workday, um, uh, the Homestead Act, uh, social insurance, uh, social security, uh, in terms of, of these concepts of freedom. And, you know, each chapter of the book is a different fight. And, um, each of those in, in, they all have an intellectual component, but almost all of them, I think all of them technically have um, an organic um, movement activist um, component. And the way that they work together or sometimes don't um, is really important. And so I think I wanted to make sure that that was conveyed as well, that this isn't just about intellectualizing, but it's about the way ideas can animate people. Yeah, one one of the things that, that immediately jumps out at me in uh, in terms of your sort of material that you cover is you have a ton of stuff from the 19th century and the early 20th century. And, and this, this I think is very interesting to, you know, people who may be, uh, you know, sort of casually involved with like American history. And, you know, people talk a lot about the new deal these days, Franklin Roosevelt, best president. I think that's true. You know, and it's like the, the 19th century is often, especially the late 19th century is portrayed as a sort of just hell of just capitalist dystopia, you know, and which, you know, is, is reading your book is quite accurate in many ways, but, um, you draw a, a thread that uh, across many way, um, different like topics and and like sites of struggle that actually the the nineteenth century, the early twentieth century was a lot more um, contested and 
uh, you know, like capitalists really had to fight to win. They didn't always win. Um, you know, b- before the New Deal was ever even, you know, a gleam in FDR's eye, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another factor in the book is it's a bit of my own education in all this. Um, so like the book summarizes a ton of research I've encountered over the last 10 years uh, being in this space and a lot of work that's being done um, right now or just recent. And, um, and you know, the book summarizes it and, and you can check the bibliography and notes to learn even more. So I, I hope it's a guide and a uh, an inroad for a lot of this, but one one body of knowledge I thought was really important and um, is reflected in the book is the idea of the um, contesting idea of like the stateless nineteenth century. The um, there's a very arg- there, there's an argument primarily by libertarians, but by some liberals that essentially the modern state starts in nineteen thirty two or nineteen thirty five or six or or, um, or in some versions like in eighteen eighty seven with like a very specific agency. But the idea that there was an active federal state going back to the founding, going back to the post office, which was a major administrative task in the seventeen eighties, um, going back to um, land the land offices and how to divide up land that's you know involved in a lot of complicated treaties, um, you know, and going on and forward and through, um, you know, that's not. The, the structure of that was always very present. And that was a question of how well it worked, who it was working for. Uh, was it being used to extend slavery? Was it being used to extend um, free labor um, institutions? Um, those were all very contested. But the idea that the state was there, I think, is just really important to reemphasize to show that, um, you know, you can't really get out of it. There's no market independent of the state. And the early market, which we think of as a very, like, uh, little house on the prairie kind of thing that's like involves no state. It's like, no, it was there. It was always being structured. So um, getting to that, I think is really important. And another reason I want to stick, I, I went into the Homestead Act is it's also interesting pre to see current day arguments about wealth and time in particular pre-industrialization um, was really intense and really cool. So the um, first probable general strike in the United States was in 1835 in Philadelphia over a 10 hour workday. And they're using language that is just powerful and intense. They're talking about uh, as people in the revolution or children of the revolution, uh, they have natural rights that bosses cannot take from them uh, to demand some control over the working hours. And it's, you know, 100 and whatever, uh, 190 years later, and people are still demanding to know their schedules in advance of a week in the service industry. So it's like (laughs) that continuity is like really powerful. And I hope it animates people. Yeah, on the one hand, it's it's sort of depressing, right? Because you're like, Jesus, 200 years and we still can't get a goddamn, uh, uh, you know, post the schedule every week that's the same. But on the other hand, you know, what I, what I liked about that especially is, is that, you know, here is a historical tradition, which is native and like, like is organic produced it's a it's a real product of american history and like sort of you know one of the central threads of it and it is ours you know it is the left's it you know you, there there's a way you know you could characterize you know the the part of the american struggle in american history that isn't about imperialism and colonialism and just like ruthless exploitation in wall street and so on and so forth there's a different story there you know those those the people have been fighting against that the whole time like americans who were born here and tried to make this place live up to all the bullshit in the declaration of independence and I think that's a nice, you know, it's like it gives can give you, if you care for it, a little bit of rootedness, you 
you know, if you want to engage in politics in this country, uh, you know, it's like it's it's uh, it's our country still. You know, it's not just you know the flag is not the possession of the Republican Party and the you know the 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 fascists who are storming the Capitol building and beating policemen with it. Yeah, I was going to say they're not even using the flag that much anymore. At least the actual <laughs> flag. Um, yeah, and I yeah. think the story is pretty well told in labor history. You know, with if you look into labor history, it's it's there's a lot there about the the long tradition of labor struggle. But that same history with public program struggle or decommodification, uh, I think, was like really interesting to tell. And you know. Um, Polani, who's uh, Great Transformation, hangs over the book quite a bit, um, you know, talked a lot about labor, uh, work and uh, I'm sorry, land, labor and money. And those same questions about how commodified they are and what form they take, um, given that they're state projects, um, exist way earlier than I think most people date. Talking about temporality, this is pretty cool. And I really appreciate that Polanyi is infused in the book, uh, both in terms of showing how markets are not self-regulating or self-correcting, but also how the state is always active in either, you know, helping the capitalists, right? And, and making market dependency a, a thing that's even stronger. Or on the other hand, you know, the, the roots and origins of things like the public corporation where, uh, you know, people would have no idea now that shareholders, uh, didn't originally own the firm that they weren't managing and so forth. But, um, in terms of temporality, what Ryan said is interesting to me because, Unlike just a progressive unfolding of freedom, you know, over time, you have these kind of struggles and victories, but also losses that to me give some hope because we could have, we maybe would have had, you know, single payer a hundred years ago, or like there were these almost victories that, that show that there's not necessarily this, this, um, kind of linear progression or this kind of lack of ability to do things. That's, that's just, um, you know, an impossibility. So, uh, I guess, you know, what can we appreciate from our history, both about the ways that these market dependent ideologies mask, uh, our, you know, our past victories and, and past losses and how can we kind of re- reclaim that history to understand what, what these markets really do and what the state really does. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, there's a, what's the right way to approach this? So there's one reason I really wanted to approach it as a history is to tell like the stories because I feel that they're just more interesting, but I think they're also more animating and uh, motivating than if you just approach it as like a textbook economics issue or a political philosophy issue. Um you know, it's it's weird how people have encountered the books. On one hand, it's like a depressing book, you know, like the Southern Homestead <laughs> Act fails uh, because Reconstruction fails uh, and white supremacy wins and World War II daycares are being back and Medicare for all doesn't happen in the 1940s and, you know, so on and so on down the line. We have this really deformed uh, social insurance system because of conservative courts and a bunch of other things. But like, I think people read it as optimistic and like hopeful. And I think, and I want it to be, it's a little like the 1619 project in that way where like conservatives jump on it though. Like if you actually read it, read it, it's like very hopeful. And it's like America can live up to its promise. Um, and so I think telling the story that way, I think does a lot of the work. Um, you know, I don't want to say it's a substitute for the actual hard work or anything, but it's like something that I hope people can appreciate and hope I think gives some grounding to it. Cause I think, you know, there's a history, this is part of the history, but so is white supremacy. So is capitalist, um, 
you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, plunder and, you know, like, but it is part of it. And it's a, a, a thread that I think can be pulled out a little bit more and, and reflected on. I mean, even just talking to people about the fact that like college used to be free, which just blows their mind. And like, you, you kind of take it for granted, like, oh, right. And it's like, oh yeah, like we, we used to have like 35, 40% union density. We used to um, think ambitiously about the scope and scale of public programs. Um, you know, like that, a lot of that had been drifting away and now it's coming back, I hope, and continues to. And I feel like giving people a sense that, you know, providing the sense of the alternative and there is no alternative world, I think is really important. And that's what history does. Uh, one guy I found very interesting in the, the book that I'd never heard of is, uh, Ira Stewart. I believe his name is. Can can you tell us about this this guy? What what's his story? So one thing I'm super fascinated about, and the book doesn't go into in grave detail, but I think it's really interesting is why the Republican Party of the 1860s um, lose it. Wh- how they can't merge civil rights and post in Reconstruction and labor rights. Um, it is and certainly one of the things that destroys Reconstruction is because you have mass labor unrest in the North and a lot of Northern elites say that's being caused by civil rights and in turn labor rights are causing civil rights issues in the South, which is to say it's just free people wanting to have democracy and power and elected office and control over their destiny and resources. Um, and so, um, you know, the book cover talks about uh, a guy named Horace Greeley, who's one of the founders of the Republican Party. And he's someone who can't make that leap and he fails. And it, it's, it has really devastating um, results. Uh, even though he loses in 1872 against Grant, his vision kind of takes over the Republican Party going forward. And Irish Stewart's one of the people who can make the leap. He's an abolitionist. Um, he's certainly very close with um, better known abolitionists. He's a little young to be in the mix in the 1850s. But he's someone who's like, slavery's over uh, in 1860, you know, in the early 1860s. Now is the time to move to labor rights and like a, a broader, more universal sense of labor rights. And he's able to make that leap, which is really interesting and cool. And I think very important because uh, it's uh, a thing we have to lasso out here in the 21st century. He's also, I think, important for current day people. Uh, also important is that um, he's probably the person who coins the phrase a living wage. Um, and he is one of the most powerful advocates for an eight-hour workday. Um, he argues, um, he makes the economic argument that we can all work less and that will push up productivity and uh, help um, lower unemployment, which is true and I think really important. And we're seeing the fact that we need more work-sharing kind of programs for both in general and in recessions. But then separately, he's also like, you need an eight-hour work to just to like have allow people to have their lives, have their communities, have their culture, to have their families. Um, that there's this sense in which you could have more is, is, is kind of like just flat out more for workers that isn't strictly tied to a dollar amount, but obviously is, is lived through a dollar amount. Um, but also that having a limit on the amount of time we spend in the workplace is a, is a check on market dominance. Now, obviously, you need something in the workplace when you're there, and that's where the Wagner Act and unionization and many other things come in. But even uh, before that, like the, the idea that you would put a limit on the amount of hours we work as a check on 
our unhealthy relationships uh, with labor. Uh, my friend Sarah Jaffe just wrote a great book, uh, Work Won't Love You Back, which is all about our unhealthy relationship with work and how we think that we can have a loving relationship with it, but it's ultimately a relationship about profit. Um, you know, I, I, he helped, I think, put a check on that and move people to think more in terms of that. And that's something that's been lost in recent decades. So I think, I, and I hope it's coming back. That's interesting because to me, the ways in which freedom in the book uh, appear to be healthy are the ways that take into account the different social relations, uh, whatever sphere they may happen to be in, right? The, the relationship um, amongst people publicly, the relationship to your boss or your fellow workers, or as you point out, the, you know, even if you have stability and a living wage, uh, th there still might be, you know, the, the social reproduction issues that, you know, domination and exploitation in the private sphere in the household. And so we need to take into account, um, public, private, uh, home, workplace, and, and, and think about our relationships to each other. And, um, and so, so I, I wonder, you know, you, you lay out the different ways in which freedom from the market, uh, constitutes true freedom. And I wonder if we could dive into a little bit, um, you know, the, the theoretical underpinnings of, of the conception of freedom that you have going here. And, and maybe the, the way to start could be to talk about what property really is, because I think that's important for people to understand. Yeah. So there's a couple different ways to approach the concept of freedom, which, um, you know, no one's ever going to agree on all of this. But I think a, a couple interjection points that I think are important for the, for the thing. One is that I think it is very natural for Americans to talk about whether or not the government makes us more or less free in civil settings and in our in air quote private lives. So like, you know, if there's a restriction on religion or assembly or the right to vote or um, the right to privacy or search and seizure, we understand that that's the government limiting our freedom. Um, but in the same way, the government sets up courts and police and uh, the ability to uh, be in public. The government also sets up the marketplace. The marketplace is fundamentally a state creation, a state project. And in the same way we ask whether or not a court proceeding, a criminal court proceeding could or cannot enhance freedom, we need to ask the same thing of the way the market is set up. Um, you know, property is fundamentally a relationship between people. Like you, your house doesn't care if you own it. Um, you know, it, what, what matters is whether or not if someone walks in your house, can you call on the state to intervene in a predictable way, aka kick them out? Um, that's one reason we spend a lot of time at the Homestead Act, because I think it's very easy to point that out to people in the beginning of the book with land, which nobody creates land. And this is actually a big headache for a lot of libertarians and a lot of classical liberals, going back to John Locke, is like, what do we do with land? Because you, we want people to own land, but you can't make land. It's not like you made a flute out of a piece of wood and you own the flute kind of thing. And so, and you know, they can say, well, you own the improvements on the land, but it's like, okay, but it's still on a piece of land. So what does that mean? And when you jump forward a couple hundred years, then you have intellectual property, you have student debt, you have a corporation, which is a legal fiction over a set of relationships that take place in a building um, and across places. Like um, then the fiction, fictitious nature of property, I think, is, is much more clearly seen, or at least its, it's, it's consequences are, are much more important. So um, that's one reason we kind of stick with that and, and go in that direction. Um, now, and, and so in the same exact way as whether or not, you know, if you have freedom of assembly or freedom of speech, um, you know, which are always like bordered by the government, like 
you know, what does it mean to have a um, contract? What does it mean to be in a labor contract? What is it like? Are you in uh, essentially a feudal relationship between master and servant? Like you were in the 1800s legally, uh, where, you know, you were responsible if you were injured, you were responsible if you didn't, couldn't finish the job, people couldn't hire you away, kind of things that were swept away in the new deal. Uh, like that's a set of relationships, uh, or do you have some set of protections against abuse? Do you have some set of protections against arbitrary and capricious firing? Um, so like, that's one way I approach it and I'll do, I'll do one more and I don't want to ramble too much on this, but the other very common way of talking about freedom, uh, in the philosophical Republican tradition is freedom from arbitrary domination by the will of others. And again, that's usually only meant in the context of the government, but again, the market's a government. It's a projection of state power. And so are you subject to arbitrary will and domination from others, from your bosses, from the people who you, you need to, like, from from the uh, healthcare industry, whether or not an insurance industry, whether or not you um, need to get healthcare, will they actually pay what you've been insured against? Um, you know, uh, against other kinds of, against platforms that are surveilling you all the time and you know, other kinds of market relationships. Um, are these set up in a way that prevents that arbitrary and capriciousness. Um, and I think our economy is increasingly structured in a way that's not uh, towards freedom there. And then there's the other things like you, um, everything, your ability to lead a free life um, requires you to have money in a capitalist society, but you need to work to make money. And there are times we cannot work um, when we are young, when we are old, when we are sick, when we are disabled, when we are caregiving um, or when we're in a recession uh, or in periods of uh, persistently high unemployment. Uh, you know, do you have the ability to secure wages to lead a life? Like um, your health, uh, your health is part, part, you're partially born with your health through your genetics. Uh, a lot of it's your life choices, but all of it is, all of that is encased in your environment and your access to resources and the information and the services of health. Um, and that's requires money and resources that no individual can really pay for their own well. That's why insurance comes into the question. So that's how I kind of approach the meta question of freedom. I, I'm sure the, the book is a mix of history, philosophy, and economics, but not enough of them to make any one expert happy. <laughs> so I'm sure the actual philosophers of freedom are going to like roll their eyes. But like for me, a generalist who like just likes reading a lot of different things, I thought it was fun to write. And I hope people like that write, like it. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it makes a lot of sense and your arguments really cohere really well and, and kind of speak to different audiences at the same time. Um, I really like, to the point you just made, the differentiation between, say, Medicare for All and what happened at, with the ACA and Judge Roberts kind of stripping away the Medicaid expansion. Um, th this is a prime example because it, it reminds me of the, of the debates w within the Democratic Party, uh, Medicare for All versus some market-based approach, right? Because one thinks of it as a right. Uh, if you have the right to health care, you have a right to it. You, sh you don't have to have the ability to pay for it. You just have the right to it. That's it. End of story. But the kind of neoliberal approach says, well, we want to make it so you can access the market and, and you have it affordable, you know, affordable healthcare, which means that the market needs to take care of you. And, and our job is to make it so that the market can do that. 
And this, to me, seems a really fundamental distinction that we don't talk about in terms of freedom enough, I think. Um, so, so maybe you could, could talk a bit, a bit more about that, because I think it goes to some crucial battles we're having today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that question about a right to something versus affordable was like very clearly stated in, in 2016. And it's very clearly part of the conversation. And, um, you know, my, my head will immediately go to like just the technical reasons, like if you are counting on private actors to carry out something, um, you're really beholden to whether or not they can do it well. If um, there are no insurance companies in a rural part of your state uh, for the ACA to have, or if you only have one that can squeeze people, then you have a major problem that you would not have had with a uh, public uh, institution, which isn't having much wider reach and a larger footprint. If um, you can't get the subsidies right, if you, uh, you know, if you can't um, time things certain well, it's actually very hard in practice to nudge private actors towards outcomes that they don't naturally want to go to, which is to say a universal baseline of, of, of white scale coverage. But I do think there's something deeper when you call something a right, because you under, you remove the logic of the idea of, of that your ability to get it will be in some way predicated on your willingness to pay. And the, private motive here on the insurance side is not serving social goals that we want, which is to say like, it's really good at like finding sick people and kicking them off insurance because like, that's how you become profitable in it, right? Like, like by definition, that's how you run it profitably. Um, but we know at scale um, how to do it. Like we know how to insure people. And one of the things about the book that actually um, was most weird for me and, and Ryan touched on in the reviews, um, like, I, so there's this uh, guy named I am Rubinoff in the book, uh, who's um, the first person to popularize the concept of social insurance, uh, or one of the first people to popularize it in the United States. He's a, uh, a doctor turned actuary uh, who worked for the government, studied European uh, all the European social insurance systems. And he taught the first course on it in, at Columbia, and he probably wrote the and he probably taught the first course, and he definitely wrote the first textbook on it. And I, you know, I got a copy of this 1913 textbook called Social Insurance, and it is literally everything, like all the things we have right now. Like, like I, like I, I just like I get mad thinking about it. Like all the stuff we face right now, he's just like, yeah, like if you have private insurance, try to do healthcare, they're gonna like people won't be able to afford it, uh, especially people who are sick who will make less money. Um, because all the, like, the capitalist relations are there. So, like, he knows it all. And he's like, and they're also like, kick people off and you'll never get the right level of coverage and the taxes will be weird and like be too oppressive on everyday people. And it's like, yeah, that's literally the problems that we see with like ACA change implementation and why Medicaid went very successfully other than the Supreme Court pulling the plug on parts of it or, or making it much harder to, to achieve. And so like, I, I keep a copy of this book around me, like for the times in which I like, through my job as a policy person, I like encounter things where it's like, what if we had like an app for healthcare or something like that? <laughs> or like, like what if we gamify <laughs> savings so that people can retire more securely? And I'm just like, I just like put my hand over the book for strength. I'm just like, fuck you all. Like, this is not how you do it. And he like hates voluntary society. He hates like charity because he thinks it's yeah. like charity is this giant substitute for public action, which is absolutely what's happening uh, in this age of hi uh, this equally hyper unequal and hyper uh, plutocratic age. And and so I think um, another thing about the rights language is like, it draws on a longer tradition. That tradition actually knew it. Like, you know, like they, they didn't miss anything. They actually understood all this stuff a century ago. It's like, we have to relearn it now. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that the the example of healthcare, I think, is interesting, especially for your sort of general argument, because if you are involved in the Obamacare exchanges, or you know, if you, if you have to like change your enrollment in your employer plan, which has happened to me for like the last, I think, four consecutive years, they've had a new plan. Uh, it, it sure would be bad, by the way, if I didn't get to keep my insurance and the status quo system. Boy, wouldn't <laughs> that be an unpleasant situation to, to experience? Is it like it when you get the new iPhone, you get like the new healthcare, and you're excited to unwrap it and like check out all the features? <laughs> yeah, right. That, hey, this one's 40% more and it covers less stuff. All right, boys. Um, yeah, it's. It's funny, you know, I mean, a little bit of a tangent here. When I started my job at the um, uh, 2014, the insurance was pretty good. And, you know, I, I mean, I went for the cheap option because, I, you know, I don't have any kids. I'm not that old, not yet. Um, and I was like, well, I guess I probably won't use that much health care. But it's gotten dramatically worse. And it's no fault of the business because the price has gone up. It was literally in one year, it went up 40%. Um and and but anyway, back 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 to the sort of freedom discussion, you know, the, they send you this packet or if you're on the Obamacare exchanges and you're looking at it and you're like, oh, here here I'm doing conservative freedom. I'm doing the freedom of the market. I am experiencing choice. I'm going through this, uh, you know, this menu of options to determine which one is right for me. And it's fucking horrible it's like one of the worst things you can possibly do it's so frustrating and it's so <laughs> coercive and horrible it, it, i mean first of all just because it's like okay i'm gambling with my life you know do, yeah. do i go high coverage and cost a ton of money or do i go low coverage and hope i don't get sick great you know it's like yeah put put my liver on black buddies and <laughs> And then it's that like all the options are dog shit, you know, that, that it's, it's like, oh, we're, we're picking between different horrible outcomes. I just want to be able to go to the doctor. And then more, I think, especially for me, because like, I don't, I haven't been to, I haven't gotten a physical in like four, four years, you know, like, like I don't use hardly any medical services. You know, I'm lucky in that sense. Like, I just don't want to worry about it. I don't want to choose. The, the experience of choosing is disgusting and I hate it. And I wish someone would force me to not choose. I want the freedom to not choose, Milton Friedman. That would be great. Just stuff me into a public plan, jack up my taxes. I'll pay, I'll pay a massive, you know, uh, a percentage premium over and above what I currently pay to not have to deal with this bullshit. And that, you know, it's like, yeah, give me that freedom from the market, baby. I love it. Give it, give yeah. it, you know, and is that not, you know, sort of exactly what you're driving at? Like the, the apotheosis of it? Yeah. And it's, um, exactly. That is absolutely the case. And the, the, the metaphor that's often used for, for your predicament and all of our predicaments is, um, skin in the game that you, um, <laughs> like you are, um, you are running a business called Ryan Cooper LLC and right. like, you have sure. a big like gamble to take uh, about whether or not you right. want to invest in this factory, but the factory is your health and security and safety. 
And like, <laughs> if the new product line pays out, then you're awesome. And if it doesn't, well, that's that's capitalism. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. This is, this and in is, fact, it's cheaper so, to not do I it mean, that way, which is a whole other issue, which they also right, knew about a hundred years ago. <laughs> It's so interesting to see how the kind of descriptive side of things where it's not actually efficient, it's not actually cheaper, uh, the market doesn't actually work the way it says it does, kind of goes with the the terrible moral philosophy and the the kind of, you know, because it occurs to me that, that you know, Foucault was right. And you're right when you talk about how neoliberalism uh, works in the bottom up, not just the top down and, and how, it, you know, the subject formation there is that we're all supposed to be not just entrepreneurs, but like responsible moral agents who make good choices. When as Ryan was just talking about, we're not very good at making these kinds of choices. We're assessing these kinds of risks. It's terrifying, anxiety ridden, and doesn't work out well for anyone. And yet we get blamed for it then, right? And so so this is where you, you see the neoliberals, uh, Biden among them, right? Who, who says, you know, we don't want to, nobody wants just kind of like a, a giveaway or a, a free lunch or whatever. They want to earn it and be responsible and have choices. It's like, fuck you, dude. You know, you're, you're totally perpetuating this myth, uh, which to me was really cool to see how it goes so far back that poverty, I didn't know this, poverty wasn't, you know, originally defined descriptively as not having access to the resources you need, but it was construed morally. Right. First, it was a moral category. Yeah. The, um, the, and then people, yeah. right. The idea so of please, go, go ahead. poverty as a line of income you are below, a line of essentially the necessities you need to not trade them off each other had to be invented. It was invented around the 19 teens and or, or around that time period. Um, before that, for a variety of reasons unique to the United States, uh, perhaps because the idea that you could always like start again somewhere else, um, the maybe. It's weird when you go back um, for why America sucked so much at that time. Like why why we're such a laggard in social insurance, and it's like so overdefined. Like, well, you know, you had um, Jim Crow in the Southern Cage. You had the conservative courts. You had a spirit of volunteerism. You had uh, the fact that everyone spent the time saying the German model of healthcare is the best, and then World War One happened, and we went to war with Germany, and that was a big headache. Uh, you had labor unions, which were fighting such an uphill battle that they didn't really want to trust the government because the government were often sending people to kill them. Uh, so they weren't looking at the government to get them health care. Fair, fair. Uh, so like, it's 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 crazy how um, hard it is to pinpoint why something like poverty <laughs> like why it was like why that specifically was so bad but there um you know it kind of comes and goes and i think the history scholarship but the um the prevalence of charity and voluntary societies and i really like hooked on to a bunch of years ago and i've always enjoyed the readings and i think it's a really important story to tell because there's charity and civil society and voluntary institutions are vastly important uh, they're important in our lives, and we could all stand to be have them more of them. But to have them, you need free time. Uh, you need a level of security and economic resources to be able to like have that ability. And third is you can't expect them to function as a de facto welfare state, which is, I think, the way the right is often uh, in a de facto governing body. And this this is very romanticized. It's a big Paul Ryan thing. Um, you know, like the idea like, oh, civil society will fill in the gaps when we pull back the government. It's like it won't. It can't. It didn't do it 100 years ago and it can't do it now. Um, there's this amazing story. I didn't I didn't get it in the book. And I should have just forced it in somehow. Um, uh, Arthur Delaney is a reporter at Huffington Post. And um, he, he covers a lot of this beat and, um, you know, food stamps and, uh, and um, food banks. There's like um, Paul Ryan had this hearing where he uh, was like, we're going to get rid of food stamps. 
And like people will be so moved by the charity and the lower taxes that they will just flood food banks with donations and like it'll be done better at the local level. So they bring in all these food bank executives and people who work in them and run them. And they're like, that's insane. If you got rid of food stamps, we would be swarmed. <laughs> like the existence of food stamps allows a baseline. Uh, and obviously food stamps should be replaced with income full stop. But like food stamps um, allow or snap now um, allows people to access enough food as a baseline that we can kind of like nimbly move in as charity and help out when, communities are particularly suffering or a group is particularly suffering or like they, they, that baseline economic security allows us as a charitable organization to like function better because we can't actually do social insurance. And, you know, that charity uh, impulse, um, you know, it's like in this comical form with GoFundMe now, it's almost like it's definitely second time as farce as like, you know, like we can all just like donate our ways. Obviously like you should donate to GoFundMe for your friends and like help like, but like that can't replace social insurance. It just can't. At a fundamental level, and that charity is also really important for daycares. One like um, like um, daycare before uh, was seen as like this private charity thing. We can talk about that, um, but like you know, like that also like um, mel uh, mel formed the creation of a modern administrative social welfare state. Yeah, you um, yeah, the, just a little a little uh, sidebar here, um, as 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 Harvey K would say in our last episode. Uh, can, tell. The, I think a lot of people don't know this story. Can you tell tell us the story of the public daycare during the Second World War, the brief public experiment that uh, you know was did, did not survive, alas, but but was briefly thriving and working great, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a wild story. I knew a little bit about it, but researching it's crazy. So. World War II is obviously total war. So like, there's just all of society's resources that mobilized this way. And it's um, a real six, like uh, my friend J.W. Mason and uh, Andrew Bossy just wrote this great paper for the Roosevelt Institute like, talking about like World War II as a Green New Deal planning exercise and how like the sheer volume mm-hmm. of government control was actually able to get workers in place and really involve transformation of, of the economy in the way that we kind of, we really need to do to challenge climate change. Um, but one of the side effects of that is they just um, conscripted so many men and sent them off to war. Um, that they needed women to go into factories. And the women's uh, employment had been increasing across the 20th century anyway, but had been depressed by the Great Depression. Uh, they were, were and have always been um, um, very much um, segre- uh, discriminated and segregated by um, uh, occupation and industry. So it involved a big influx of women, but in particular a big influx of women into government and manufacturing jobs, which they had not been in industrial jobs, which tend to be higher paying, uh, a very different kind of work atmosphere. And crucially, um, they could not take their kids to work. And so um, they, they, the government understood that there was a problem here. And um, there was a proposal to basically do government daycares, and everyone went nuts in elite spaces. The Catholic Church, the social worker bureaucracy, which we'll talk about in a second, conservatives, they almost had like this bidding war for like, if we do this, how quickly can we yank it out? And they like had competing bills for how quickly it would disappear. Uh, but they did it. Uh, and they, um, within a year of spending money, um, local communities would apply for grants and then the money would come down and then they'd have it. And, you know, they weren't state-of-the-art facilities, though some of them were because they were competing for spaces and resources and people to work in them and places to hold them. Um, just like everything else was during mobilization, but they existed. And within a year or two, um, hundreds of thousands, like 100,000 plus kids were enrolled in them. And, you know, the surveys show that they were um, 
people enjoyed them. People um, were fans of them. Like they, they appreciate them. The big thing that I think is really relevant um, out here, at least the thing I think is really worth reflecting on is up until that point, daycare was basically a function of um, social workers and charity. That if you were using a daycare, you were seen uh, as a mother using a daycare, you were seen as something was morally wrong with you um, and something needed to be fixed that you were stigmatized though. They wouldn't, even use the word stigmatized in a bad way. They'd be like, yeah, of course, like something's gone wrong and we need to help fix you. They'd use it almost like a medical-ish, like a, like a kind of biopolitics kind of um, uh, stigmatization. And so they'd want to keep case files and so on. The military had no patience for this. And uh, like they needed people to work in factories. So they're like, if you will build us a bomber, you can come and we will give you daycare. Like, no, you don't have to tell us your income from last year. You don't have to like <laughs> tell us about where your husband is. <laughs> Like, like we have literally could not Mike. care. <laughs> you and, have this great line: "The U.S. didn't leave it to the market to win World War II." Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like that's so spot on, right? Like it, when it came down to it, it's very, very clear what the state needs to do to get things done, and it can do it. But um, I, I also want to go to this question of uh, freedom's relationship to the rest of our lives, our health, our well-being, whether the choice to have kids, to get married, and how that market dependency, again, kind of determines so much of this, uh, and whether we can get healthcare or not can make us sick. And you write, quote, sickness can be a form of confinement, preventing us from living free lives. And that really resonated during the pandemic and COVID for me, obviously, right? So, so um, you know, it also occurred to me that that line has to do with how our relationships with each other sometimes require us to, to bind ourselves to each other, to, to maybe confine ourselves for others. Um, so, so, you know, what do you think of that idea of, of freedom as being something that might entail sacrifice and, and um, you're thinking of what your limits are and what other people's needs are um, and, and how maybe we should, we should think through this more expansive notion of, of freedom? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, there's obviously – being able to make the choice to commit to something in a way that sacrifices some options um, is the very definition of relationships. And having the background institutions enable them to be more freely chosen with alternatives and with a sense of security and confidence, I think, is essential. Um, you know, I talked about daycare. And, you know, one thing that jumped out at me is phrasing by um, – Emily Stolsitz, who wrote this fantastic book about uh, World War II daycares and, and the campaign to keep them over, to keep them open, um, which failed but did have some victories, and I think is still a worthwhile thing. Um, she notes that um, the New Deal, however tenuously, um, ripped open the private sphere of the workplace, which is not a private sphere at all, as we talked about, and inserted, however tenuously, it's like some levels of democratic accountability, um, or at least democratic say, uh, but it and provided support for that. But it did not interject with the other nominally private sphere, uh, which is the household. And, um, you know, the household has always been structured by the government, whether it's the Homestead Act, ensuring that a patriarch can have land to raise multi-generational family towards um, the working conditions and, you know, what those look like for both men and women. And the level of support you would want to ensure that families are secure um, did not occur. Um, the one, there's this really interesting court case we talk about in the book. Um, so World War II daycares fail, and then like the government moves to essentially submerge family support. 
Uh, and so you get these child um, tax credits. Uh, you get um, notably the one I walk through is the um, uh, essentially um, daycare tax credits. And um, they're structured as deductions. Then they evolve and they evolve in a certain way. But they're always hidden and submerged. And, you know, there's this literature around this um, that I think is really important. Um, but it was done explicitly to prevent that from becoming a public thing. And so uh, to, to back up to the question is that, like, the government's always structuring these kinds of things. The question is how well it does it. The, there's a question of how visible and uh, democratic it does it. There's a question of who benefits from it and who ultimately gets to partake in choice and freedom in these relationships. I think when it comes to the household in particular, um, and you see it a lot with this kind of like um, – um, uh, what do we even call it anymore, but like the populist right, nationalist right, this kind of like American affairs world where um, if you really dig down into it, they're really keen on bringing back the family wage. And the way they're going to do that is get rid of uh, immigrants and undocumented workers and do some tariffs. And um, I think that will fail because I do not think undocumented workers are the reasons why uh, the labor share of income is falling and why the 1% has doubled their share of income. Um, even if you can eke out a, a result that it pales in comparison to the declining value of the minimum wage over the last 30 years. Um, but in their heads, they're like, oh, we'll just get like the patriarch back in charge of the family and they'll have like a good paycheck. Then women will want to marry them. Uh, and then they'll like want to stay home and have kids because they'll have the security. And it's like, that's an imaginary world. That's not coming back that way. And we need to think about how to structure the institutions that support healthy families, um, things that allow parents to work, things that end childhood poverty, things that ensure that families aren't indebted for their whole lives so their kids can like go to college. Um, you know, those kinds of institutions, I think, help then structure the ability to then say, like, people are going to spend their lives together and people are going to commit to these relationships that um, trade off freedoms, um, but in a way that's not constrained by the dependency on the market. Yeah. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, to, to speak of, you know, in a more concrete fashion that this, this, the, like an example, the type of, uh, market dependency enacted in a sort of concrete governmental fashion is like the Lochner doctrine, which you, uh, you rehearse the history of this in the book. And this, this is, you know, an example of what, what you might call legal tyranny, um, you know, a, 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 a political domination that is enacted through like market or, or even kind of pseudo marketplace, you know, like contracts getting so ridiculously like elaborate that it just the, the idea that it's some sort of free exchange of anything becomes completely preposterous. But so can you rehearse a little bit of that history and can you tell us about uh, I, I can't recall if you put this in the book or not, but but you you've mentioned before something called First Amendment Lochnerism and how conservatives are are trying to basically tendentiously read into the First Amendment, uh, you know, new new ways that would sort of make regulating the economy illegal if it helps the working class. Yeah, absolutely. So the Lochner Doctrine is, uh, I'm not a, a law professor, so I'm going to probably butcher it for people who know it really well, but it's essentially at its core the idea that the freedom of contract is written into the Constitution, it was written into the 14th Amendment, and it's an inalienable right that you have the right to form whatever contract you want uh, with another person if you both come to it as equal beings, or not even that, like that. that's the, the way that you can structure that. And it butts up against something called the police powers, which is basically the idea that's 
states in particular, but also the federal government through the Commerce Clause, um, but states in particular in the original cases, have the ability to regulate their marketplaces, including the marketplace for labor. And um, that they can do that for health and safety and for concerns about equity and many other things. And um, Blackner Court said, no, you couldn't do that. And uh, they, you couldn't do that to, um, at the um, even at the state level. This is, wasn't even uh, an anti-federal thing, though they obviously invalidated many federal laws as well. And it got – so one thing is just like it's really – anger inducing that that is happening at the same time that they are sealing the deal on the reconstruction amendments, being able to overturn Jim Crow. Um, so Lochner, I'm going to butcher these dates, but I think it's 1905 and like two years earlier in 1903, they basically say that, um, the right to vote, uh, and the, um, amendment that has the voting rights, 15th amendment. Did I do that right? Did I get that true? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the 15th Amendment basically um, won't isn't applicable to state level or southern laws against um, blacks voting. And so that's like um, like so like they're like, yeah, the 15th Amendment doesn't even do anything. It, you can't overturn voting. I mean, and the law is like you can vote. <laughs> and they're like, no, it's, that doesn't mean that. And two years later, like, oh, yeah, the 14th Amendment. That means like you can work a 100 hour week as a baker. and No one can tell you no. <laughs> like, so it's like a total perversion <laughs> of the legacy of Reconstruction, the second founding. Um, that ideal is wrong. And it's important in the book kind of talks through about like why it's wrong. Because it's wrong in like a lot of different ways. Uh, one is that it's totally appropriate for states to regulate their marketplaces because they create the marketplaces and they enforce them and they should they have rights to regulate in terms of equity and health and safety and many other causes. Uh, and especially at that time, people were very worried about the notion of, um, you know, like of tuberculosis and many other health problems that were occurring in the baking industry. But the, the more profound one, I think, is from uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who writes a very famous dissent that um, the book does not, uh, the, the Constitution does not uphold Herbert Spencer's um, social statistics, which is basically like the economics 101 of its day, the economic 101 textbook of its day equivalent. So it's basically like the Constitution is not a, an entry level economics textbook. <laughs> this is how we would translate it now. It's not Greg Mankiw's economics or whatever. Um, like it's it's meant to balance a lot of competing needs and one thing he points out is like you know like they balance a lot of competing needs when it comes to like gambling laws and liquor laws and laws about what business when businesses can be open but it's only when it comes to labor that suddenly it's like oh my god you can't mess with the market um when it's a lot of like you know, more bougie, like issues like that. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, you can like limit the amount of hours liquor stores open, but it's like, no, like workers want to like organize. No way. And it's, um, the, the court continues to do that. One of the weirdest things like I found in researching the book, it's in, um, Jeff Shussell's, um, Supreme Power, which is a really great book about, um, FDR versus Supreme Court is that in the 36 election, the Republicans actually ran on an amendment to the constitution to limit the Supreme Court. Um, uh, their their ability to write uh, their ability to overturn economic laws um, because they're think of the politics of this the, the Republicans are running on like we don't need the federal government the states should run all this stuff so we don't need a federal um, wage floor because like the states can come up with them if they want and then uh, I think New York uh, or maybe Pennsylvania um, has a, a minimum wage wage floor Supreme Court overturns that so now like the Republicans are, like are caught in a shitter because it's like, oh, wait, like the one thing we propose that we want to do, the conservative court won't let us do. So they're actually like, there's a, a line in their 36 platform that's um, 
the the Supreme Court should acknowledge that the states have the right to do which they've always assumed they do, which is basically about this. That is a long tangent, and I'm sorry <laughs> for it. But um, no, that's awesome. That's that's really good. I, I also want to want to talk briefly about the fact that well. It, we'll see how brief it is, but we, we know from your book and from the discussion, right, that there's a lot of bullshit arguments from the right and from neoliberals uh, that pretend that it's about big and small government. It's not. That pretend the state isn't involved with structuring markets and that pretend that markets don't structure uh, our freedom or oppression in all these different spheres. So so we know that. So we know that like the stakes of politics are freedom in all arenas of life and our relationships, and we need to fight for uh, making ourselves free in all those spheres, right, and not buy into to this notion that, that markets do it for us. Um, so then to the question of, okay, we don't like neoliberalism. That's clear. That creates market dependency. And we want to limit and go back to our history and limit uh, the role of markets in determining um, these things and, and making us unfree. How do we then think for a positive vision when you look at our history, when you look at um, you know social democracies around the world, when you think of the difference between social democracy and, and kind of uh, democratic socialism, how should we think of markets? Can there be such a thing as market socialism? What, what should we be thinking of as a positive vision and, and how we think through the different policy debates today? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, markets have been around for well before capitalism, um, whatever you want to say, capitalism started 1600s, 1800s, whatever. You mark the exchange of things has existed for millennia. And hundreds of years from now, when capitalism is something different, uh, there'll still be people exchanging things. Uh, and they may even put a numerary, like they may even put a price on it or some sort of like reference point. Um, the question is, um, I would emphasize that Whatever it is, it needs to be it needs to be democratically chosen, and uh, it needs to have a democratic component to it. Um, I don't have all the answers, though. I think there's so much low hanging fruit that there's a lot of ways to go. Um, you know, the nature of the corporation, um, the nature of, of certain kinds of public utilities. There are healthy fights about um, should we be aiming for more public utility regulation, or should we be looking to break up larger businesses? Um, do we want to make the public a public shareholder in a lot of companies and use that towards equitable growth? Or do we want to limit the power of shareholders? Uh, I'm involved in those fights. Like we're all like debating those things and they're really important, but they all have to understand the idea that the market is constructed and the market is limiting our freedom and we need a different alternative to it. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, I think it's even starting with the idea of market dependency and decommodification um, is a good entry point. And one thing that I really you know, I've been involved with various conversations over the last five, 10 years and trying to get um, people to think in terms of this idea that inequality is constructed by the rules of the economy. And, uh, you know, we wrote a book, uh, Rewriting the Rules, and we really try to emphasize the, a market structure understanding of the growth of inequality the last 40 years. But one thing that really occurred to me, and this was really obvious about four or five years ago when I was involved with this a little bit closer, was that um, you make that argument, but it's not actually clear what you do on the other side, right? So you can, like, break through this wall, this ideological wall of, like, um, you know, market supremacy. And then you're like, no, no, markets are created by the government. And then you like break through the wall, but it's like just like an ideological like pocket of air you're stuck in. <laughs> you're like not sure what to say or do because it's like, okay, but like, okay, now what? It's a huge problem because the more sophisticated neoliberals, people like Frederick Hayek and Milton Friedman, totally understand that. Um, it's what is new in liberalism or new in classical liberalism is the idea that they want an affirmative state project to limit the scope of democracy. They all live through the New Deal. They all hate the New Deal. Uh, and they all hate uh, the beverage rich plan and, and other forms of not just communism, but like social democratic experimentation. 
And so they're thinking, like, how do we affirmatively create the state to limit this? So just pointing it out that the market's constructed doesn't necessarily get us where we need to go. And especially because some of the smarter enemies will be ahead of us. So we need, I think, I, you know, I personally think decommodification is freedom is, is a good avenue. Uh, and many other people may disagree with that. But I think having that conversation is essential. Yeah. Well, you know, I can think of a few things. $15 minimum wage, that's uh, that's on the table. Medicare for all. Uh you know, financial transaction tax, social wealth fund, um, uh, uh, what determination? What? Yeah, co-determination and uh, and sectoral or you know bargaining. sectoral bargaining, and you know you could you could maybe swap in a uh, you know a worker ownership fund with the social wealth, you know, depending on taste. But um, <laughs> that's the nice thing about the, the the social democratic countries. There's a lot of there's a lot of workable stuff in there that you can sort of copy paste. And I think this is a sort of the flip side of the pest, like the depressing read of a lot of history you talk about, Mike, is that, um, you know, you look at, you know, a hundred years ago and you're like, oh man, these get like people had it all figured out a hundred years ago and you just didn't do it because of racism, because the Supreme Court was stacked with a bunch of assholes and, um, you know, various other things. But the advantage of that, you know, back in them days, it wasn't quite so obvious uh, you know, it's like those those guys were, tr- you know, trailblazers to some extent. You know, even, you know, Marx, when was Capital published? Uh, 1869, uh, somewhere in there. You know, uh, th- th- this was this was newer stuff. Uh, now it's like, well, there's a, you know, <clears throat> as you say, there's so much that's just bleeding obvious. And you don't have to think up new innovative stuff that that it's like incredibly weird and radical and nobody knows if it'll work or not. No, of course it'll work. Look, look over there. Look at these half dozen countries that, that are all so they work so much better than us in these specific ways. And so, you know, we can just plant that in there and then, you know, then we can talk about what's better than that. And, you know, try to push the boundaries forward. Maybe we, maybe we could beat the Nordics. Like we beat the Nordics in our crazy, generous, uh, CARES Act and unemployment insurance benefit. Uh, <laughs> yes. you know, I, it's about time somebody took them down a peg, I would say. But yeah, and, and it's, it's really important to have the proof of concept. And what my book hopefully will supplement is a Americana case for a lot of those things. Yeah. You know, like it's, right. um, it's the, the Nordics and other places are, are obvious. It's very important to know that it can not just can work, but like all like basically always works. Like everyone, like there's a lot of varieties on how to do a lot of these things, but like they all have better outcomes than we do in healthcare. Um, but tying it to an American story that I think can hopefully uh, help supplement that with a with a history and uh, a motivating ideology. Absolutely. Well, it's uh, been about an hour, Mike. That's all the questions I have. Any. Final comments before we let you go for the evening. Um, yeah, thanks for engaging the book so much. This is a really awesome discussion. I, I'm, I'm glad we had the chance to talk about it. And it's, um, I hope that um, no matter what element you're interested in, if it's the economics, if it's the political philosophy, if it's uh, the history, if it's uh, you know the comparativeness, um, you know, I, I hope that there's something in there for everyone because I, I wanted to make it um, really pull from the best arguments that have been made over the last decade and um i hope i hope people enjoy the book is called freedom from the market we'll link it in the description uh i definitely recommend picking this one up it's a nice nice quick read got got you know own your relatives on facebook tell them about the real american history 
Sorry. Um, and, and, and uh, Ryan, which one of us is Cisco? Which one's Evert? Cause we get two thumbs up either way, but I don't know which one's which, <laughs> but, uh, a, you know, that's a good question. Um, we'll have I'll to, be Ebert. okay, fair enough. Can I claim, can I claim that? We'll see. Yeah. I'll be the, I'll be the, the, uh, you know, skinny guy who, who has a lot of, who's not actually that good at film criticism, but <laughs> it has a lot of great, uh, uh, you know, cocaine parties. <laughs> he was like, yeah, he was pulled into film. Uh, so I'm a Chicagoan who went to U of I, University of Illinois. So like, where Roger Ebert went. So I actually know a lot of this trivia. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Siskel like was a bad movie reviewer and he was like pulled into it accidentally. Uh, and like people were kind of mad that the, there's a Gene Siskel uh, film center in Chicago because he died first. And so that's why. <laughs> Talking about cocaine him. parties and I don't know, I assume orgies. Wasn't Roger Ebert involved with Valley of the Dolls somehow? He wrote it, Do didn't he? Did he write? I thought he wrote it. Is that right? Yeah. He wrote it. Okay. There's a lot of a lot of drugs and sex in that as well. What a yeah. good note to end on. Well, thanks again, Mike. <laughs> this is, this is, we we always like ending on uh, cocaine orgies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Appreciate appreciate you joining us. It was a pleasure, my friend. Same. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. Hello, everyone. Alexi the Greek here. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a friendly reminder that uh, to support the show. And also to get access to a number of bonus episodes, you could join us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash left anchor, $5 a month, gets you a lot of episodes and really, really helps us out. So um, if that's something you're interested in and, and you want to show your support, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much.